If you didn't get a handout, raise your hand and Brother John's got them back there for the chapter 16, 17, and 18 of the Second London Confession of Faith. All right, just keep your hand up until you get one. Anybody else? Two over here and anybody over here on this side? Brother Danny back there. All right, quite a bit to uh, go through this afternoon, so let's get right to it. Remember that last week we talked about something that you may never have heard of before, or at least you never heard of it in the way that the confession talked about it, and that was temporary faith, right? And we uh, looked at passages of Scripture where the Bible talks about people quote-unquote believing or becoming disciples or whatever, and yet they ended up walking away from the Lord. Like Jesus said, the seed sown sometimes produces no fruit at all, but other times, uh, I mean, it never on bad ground, it never produces fruit, but sometimes there is sort of a response, right? And uh, the, 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 the plant grows up temporarily before it withers and uh, falls away. So what are what is true faith then as opposed to false faith or saving faith as opposed to quote-unquote temporary faith? And I said last week that I think there are at least four characteristics of true saving faith. Do you remember them from last week? Some of you have notes. Uh, maybe you remember them, but I think these chapters, the subsequent chapters, unfold the elements of saving faith, or the characteristics of saving faith. So, for example, uh, we there were two characteristics of saving faith that we looked at last week in chapters 14 and 15. In chapter 14, we saw that true faith looks to Christ, not to self. It's focused on the objective work of Jesus Christ. And secondly, chapter 15, true faith is repentant. It's repentant about sin. This week, we look at the second two characteristics of saving faith. One, that saving faith results in good works that flow from our faith union with Christ, and that's going to be chapter 16, good works. And then two, that saving faith perseveres throughout the lifetime in the face of trials and temptations, and that's going to be chapter 17. And then we'll go on and look at chapter 18 as well. I think the first two characteristics of saving faith, the the chapter on faith and the one on repentance, they really get to the heart or the essence of faith, that it turns away from sin in order to look to Christ. The second two chapters, the ones we'll look at today on good works and perseverance, they speak more to the fruit of faith. That is, the evidences or manifestations of faith, the result of the results of faith in the life of somebody who really has, who actually has saving faith. And the first one of those evidences is chapter 16, good works. All right? So let's read through this and discuss it a little bit here this afternoon. And if anybody has any questions at the end, we can do that. Or just a comment, something that stood out to you helpfully, uh, that would be fine. So paragraph one. And, and interestingly, most of the paragraphs, or a lot of what's said in this chapter especially, is uh, a clarification of the Reformed or Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone, um, as opposed to the Catholic conception of the role that good works play in our ultimate, um, in our in our justification, ultimately salvation. So, paragraph one: good works, 
Good works are only those works that God has commanded in His Word, in His Holy Word. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. So what are good works? Well, positively stated, they are those things that God has commanded. And negatively stated, good works are not those that fail to have that warrant. That is, the warrant of the command of God. And uh, the Protestants were uh, concerned to um, that, that man-made rules not be lifted up to the level of, uh, of a good work. They were looking for biblical warrant for uh, observing uh, religious um, traditions. They were looked at the Catholic uh, tradition, for example, of lighting candles for the dead, that sort of thing, as not being, they would not identify that as a good work because they believed that there was no biblical warrant for it. So they want to carefully narrow down what, um, what really is a good work. Remember, Jesus condemned the Pharisees who taught as doctrines the commandments of men. Reformers were very concerned that that was the case within the, the Roman church as a whole. So there's a clarification there. The second paragraph is another clarification. These good works, that is those that are commanded by God, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. This is that distinction that you are very familiar with, I'm sure, between root and fruit. Good works are not the root or the cause of justification. They are the fruit of justification. This is a cause and effect thing. So, they go on to say in paragraph 2, though through good works, believers express their thankfulness. They strengthen their assurance. These are all benefits of good works or good effects of good works in our lives. They express our thankfulness. They strengthen assurance. They build up the brothers and sisters. They adorn the profession of the gospel. This is Peter, right? Peter says this. Um, and they stop the mouths of opponents and they glorify God. All of these wonderful positive effects that good works have in the lives of a believer. Then he goes on to say, believers are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You hear the echoes of Ephesians chapter 2 there so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome of a life of holiness that is eternal life. And what I want you to see here is that the Reformers were very concerned to not separate, but always distinguish good works as the fruit of justification and, and justification itself. They never wanted, they, they always wanted to distinguish them, but they never wanted to separate them so that someone could be justified and not live a life of good works. And of course, many passages of scripture, James chapter two nails this. The whole book of first John nails this, right? These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, what, what are written? Well, your life's going to be changed, brother, right? You're going to love God's people. And you're going to hate sin if you're really and truly a Christian. 
And you might sin, and you have an advocate with the Father, but these are written that you would not sin. And, and by that, by seeing that happen in your life, you're encouraged um, that you really are the Lord's. And here's, here's one of the passages that really ties this together in the way that the writers of the Confession were, um, were putting it here at the end of paragraph 2. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 22. Take a look at this. Now, you have been set free, right? It's kind of a definitive thing. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Now that you have been, he says, the fruit you get leads to what? Justification. And it's what? It's end eternal life. So, the fruit of having been set free in a kind of definitive way is a life of sanctification. And the outcome of a life of sanctification, of growing sanctification, the outcome of that is what? Eternal life. So let no one say that he will have eternal life whose life is detached from the work of sanctification. Right? The outcome of a sanctified life is eternal life. Now you might say, well, I think I thought I already have eternal life. You do. Because God is the one who gave you the whole thing. The justification and the eternal life and all of the sanctification that comes in between. It's all the work of God, right? So they want to make sure that these things are together. Um, paragraph three. Here is a clarification about the origin of good works. Their ability, talking about believers now, believers' ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. To enable them to do good works, they need, in addition to the graces they have already received, an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do His good pleasure. That's right out of the Bible, Philippians 2, right? Yet, there is no reason for them to grow negligent as if they were not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the Spirit. In, in the, instead, excuse me, they should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in them. So what... What's happening here is, you see it, they're trying to capture both God's sovereignty, that He will, in fact, work out good deeds in the lives of believers, and then on the other hand, personal human responsibility, that we feel that that is our duty. It's not just that we sit back and say, God's going to make me act good, so I'm, I'm going to wait for it. No, we, we do good works because... That is our responsibility. And of course, the passage already alluded to, Philippians chapter 2, that they, they just capture so well. Here says this, Beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. There's our responsibility, our duty, with fear and trembling, Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. There's His sovereign work, right? Why do we work it out? Uh, because God's working in us. Um, God is working in us what? Both to will, that's, that's the coming, that's the faith, 
and to do or to work. That's the good works that flow from faith. God's working out both the faith and the good works that flow from faith for his good pleasure. So there's God's sovereign working, but our absolute duty to press on to good works, to yield to God, to make use of the means of grace, to to, uh, obey the Lord in everything. What an amazing thing to me it is that God would work in us the works that He demands of us and yet at the same time not do them apart from us. Right? God would work in us the very things that He demands from us and yet not work apart from us but rather give us the joy of the experience of sharing His holiness. To me, this is the beauty of the biblical doctrine of sanctification and good works. We are called in in being commanded to do these good works, we are being called to enter into communion with Christ, to know what it is for Christ to work out His goodness in us, in our actual experience, so that we may share in the joy of communion with Him. All glory to Him, even while we press on to to these things. All right, the next two paragraphs, paragraph 4 and 5, deal with reasons for why our good works are not meritorious, why they don't earn our salvation. Paragraph 4. Those who attain the greatest heights of obedience possible in this life are far from being able to merit reward by going beyond duty, that is, to supererogate, or to do more than God requires. That's impossible, they're saying. Instead, they fall short of much that is their duty to do. This is an argument against or a denial of the Catholic conception of works of supererogation. Good works that are more than what is required in order to enter heaven, to have eternal God's eternal salvation. And the belief was that some sort of super-Christians, saints, as they're called in the Roman Catholic Church, these saints have done so much good that they've done more than they need to go to heaven. And so their extra goodness is sort of banked up, as it were. Like you put money in your savings account from beyond what you need to just live. You have to spend that money, but you have more than what you need, so you put it in the bank. There's a treasury of merits. The merits of the saints. And Upon the uh, faithful observance of the sacraments, you may draw for yourself down the merits of the saints to be beneficial to you and to your loved ones, to your um, family who's gone on before, things like that. And, And the Reformers said, essentially, there is a treasury of merits, but there's only one who's ever made a deposit in there, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us who is is a beneficiary of that perfect righteousness. There's only one perfect righteousness. 
and that is the righteousness of the God-man, the Lord Jesus. So this is a denial of that. And then paragraph 5 goes on to talk about the, the, the argue that our works are not meritorious. We cannot, they say, even by our best works, merit pardon from sin or eternal life from God's hand due to the huge disproportion between our works and the glory to come and the infinite distance between us and God. Those are two reasons why our good works will never be meritorious. By these works, we can neither benefit God nor satisfy Him for the debt of our former sins. If you were to do everything perfect for the rest of your life from today on, what is today? February the 26th, 7th? February 27th, 2022, for the rest of your life, you were to be perfect. Now, first of all, I want to hear from you in 10 years and see how you're doing on that one. Secondly, even if you were, you have owed God obedience all your life for He who made, for He made you. What about all of your sins of the past? Nothing can make up for that. Nothing, these sins are, uh, are, are, are already committed. It goes on to say, uh, I've lost my place here. When we have done all we can, middle of paragraph five, we have only done our duty and our unprofitable servants, right? Luke 17, verse 10. Since our good work, excuse me, since our good works are good, then they must proceed from God's Spirit. And since they are performed by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot withstand the severity of God's punishment. In other words, even our good works. Now I'm talking about evangelical good works, which is just a phrase that means our good works that flow from faith. The good works that true Christians do, really in union with Christ. Even those good works, because we do them, um, they are tainted with weakness and imperfection. Now they are, they are truly good. They are truly good, truly good, because they flow from, uh oh, <laughs> because they flow from our union with Christ. And all of Christ's works are good. Right? Are you following me? <laughs> all right, we're back. <laughs> All of Christ's works are good. The works He does in Himself or the works He does through His people. So they're good. They're truly good in that sense. And yet they're not good in the sense that they're still tainted by our own um, fallenness and uh, and our, 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 our mixed. They're not done perfectly. You think about when you've done something that you know God wanted you to do and you walk away saying, Oh, I'm so thankful for what, you know, what God's done. And yet even, even as you look back on that, you can say, you know what? I probably could have done it even better. I probably could have done it more earnestly. Uh, maybe I even had a little bit of a mixed motive at some times when I was doing that, you know? None of our good works are meritorious in that strict sense. And then paragraph seven. <clears throat> works, now it's talking about works done by, uh, Oh, I, excuse me, I, I skipped, didn't I? Uh, I did, thank you. Um, so, paragraph five. Now, last two paragraphs, six and seven. These talk about the differences between the works of believers, paragraph six, and the work of unbelievers, um, the so-called good works of unregenerate people, paragraph seven. So, paragraph six. 
Nevertheless, in spite of their works being imperfect and not meriting salvation, talking about believers, nevertheless, in spite of that, believers are accepted through Christ. This is what I was getting at a minute ago. I was ahead of myself. They are accepted through Christ, and thus their good works are also accepted in Him. This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. Instead, God views them in His Son, and so He is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. This is what I was saying about believers' works. And then unbelievers, in paragraph 7, or unregenerate people, works done by unregenerate people may in themselves be commanded by God and useful in themselves to themselves and others. Yet they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word, nor with a right goal, the glory of God. Therefore they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God. And yet, their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. Of course, this is an acknowledgement that there are degrees of sinfulness, right? All have sinned. Not all are equally sinful in in, in, in a certain sense. Not everybody is as bad as he could possibly be. I know you guys know some very nice, kind, unregenerate people. And the good works, the quote-unquote good works of unregenerate people, the confession says, can be beneficial even. They can have a benefit to themselves. If somebody lives according to God's commandments um, on a kind of surface level, um, he's going to have, in general, a better life than a person who just blatantly ignores God's commands, right? Absolutely. Uh, they can be a benefit to themselves and, in fact, to others, their family, those around them. If you live by God's wisdom, and even unbelievers have a kind of um, wisdom that, uh, that uh, comes by living life in accordance with the way God made the world, right? And yet the Bible tells us that real wisdom begins with the what? The beginning of wisdom is, yeah, the fear of the Lord. So in that sense, in the, in the strictest sense, that even those works are not good. Even that wise kind of living, though it might be beneficial on a human level in some ways, it's not ultimately good in terms of God because it does not flow from the fear of the Lord. It doesn't flow from faith, the desire to glorify God. And the Bible is filled with examples of this kind of thing. Cain offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Good or bad? Is it good to offer sacrifice to the Lord? Well, yeah, it's good, but in a sense, it's bad for Cain. It's, 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 it's a great evil. Why? Because it does not flow from what does Hebrews 11 say? It says it, he didn't do it in faith. It doesn't. It wasn't a good, a truly good work because it did not flow from faith. Or consider um, that God spoke to His people Israel through the prophets, like Amos, and He says to them, "I hate and despise your feasts." Well, God commanded those feasts. Is He saying 
what I've commanded is evil? No, it's not that what he commanded was evil. It's the fact that it didn't flow from a heart of faith. Or Jesus, who condemned the Pharisees, who were meticulous about the formalities of God's law in many respects. But of course, the the reality is they lacked a real heart of love for God. It did not flow from faith in their case. I used already the illustration of the pirates on the ship who do many quote-unquote good works to one another, but the problem is they're at war with the rightful sovereign. And that makes all their quote-unquote good works bad works because they're just furthering themselves along in that rebellion. So the Reformers wanted to be very careful, writers of the Confession, very careful to, to guard the nature of what really is a good work. Um, and with regard to this last paragraph here, Sam Waldron commenting on this paragraph in the Confession, um, I think helpfully summarized, pull, just pulling four things right out of the Confession here, and of course based in Scripture, that a truly good work must meet four criteria according to the Confession and the Word of God. Number one, they must be done in the right manner. That is, I mean, it, it must be the right matter, M-A-T-T-E-R. I think we got that for the screen. That is, it has to be a thing that is commanded by God in order to be a good work. Secondly, there it is, that it's done from the right root, that is, from a heart of faith. Thirdly, done in the right manner, that is, they do it according to God's way, what the way that God prescribes it to be done. All of this is reflected in the confession. And to the right end, or for the right goal, that is, for the glory of God. This is a description, biblically, of what something that really is a true good work is commanded by God, done from faith, according to God's word, for the glory of God. And, uh, you know, the truth is, our best works don't always perfectly fit that, but done from the, a real heart of faith and, uh, and in spite of our imperfections, they are received by God as, uh, as good works and because they flow from a, a true union with Jesus Christ. It's like the branch that bears fruit because it's connected. Okay, comments, questions on the chapter on good works? Anybody want to say something or ask somebody on, something on that? Well, all right. Shall we press on to chapter 17? This is the second manifestation of saving faith, and that is perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. Paragraph 1. Those God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, and he's going to go on and, and talk about their perseverance. But I want to just stop here and say that, hey, all of these are saving graces, right? He's, he, he has accepted them in the beloved. This is their election. He's called them. He's sanctified them. All of those graces come together in a package. We, we can never say, uh, we can never isolate one of the graces of God from the whole which is bound in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have justification and sanctification, resting in God's election, His, His preservation, and, and ultimately glory. All of that comes together. So it's talking about all of these graces, people who are elect and called and sanctified, who have faith, they can never, it says, totally 
nor finally fall from a state of grace. Now, there is certainly a kind of partial and temporary fall. Peter himself, the great apostle, was an example of this, our brother, who yet fell in a very dramatic way. But, it says, they will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. And I just love the way it's sort of phrased. They will certainly, that's inevitability, and they will what? They will persevere, and that's sort of responsibility. Who perseveres? God preserves, they persevere. Um, So you have this inevitability and responsibility, and the reason they will not utterly fall is, quote, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And that comes right from Romans chapter 11, which is in the context of God's divine, sovereign, saving work of his people. So what will God do in order to keep somebody in the faith then? Next part of the paragraph. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. I remember years ago having a conversation with somebody who believed you could lose your salvation. They came from a, I forgot the denominational background now, but, um, and the conversation kind of went to something like this. They were like, well, believe that once saved, you're always saved, you know, kind of using that language. And if, if that's true, then, then somebody could not even have faith anymore, not be repentant of their sin, and not love God, and do good works, and, and they're just going to be saved because they, they can never be lost. And, and the answer is no, those kinds of people don't exist. If God, if God started the good work of salvation, then He will continue all of those graces of nourishing and, and, and sustaining in that person faith and repentance. If, we, if I look at a person who is unrepentant about sin, I'm going to say the same thing about him as my brother over there is, the guy I was talking to. He's not, well, I'm not going to say exactly the same thing. He might say he, he lost his, um, however, I'm not sure how they would say it exactly, but ultimately lost a salvation. But, but um, we would say that this brother is not the Lord's. This person is not the Lord's. Uh, for the Lord's people are characterized by faith and repentance and, and a change of life. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. I, I, I hope that we see that this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is, is robustly reformed. It, it flows from what's sometimes called Calvinism. It is a natural entailment of this doctrine. If God started the work, then it, God will see to it that it goes all the way, right? Perseverance and eternal security is a doctrine of grace, sovereign grace. And what a blessing. Because there are so many things in life that I start that I don't see through, right? You ever had that? So what about your salvation? What about your faith? What about repentance? By the grace of God, it was not something that had its origin in me, and it's not something that is ultimately going to be mine to sustain. While I am responsible to persevere in faith, the gracious Lord says, I will 
uphold in faith all of those who come to me. The uh, end of paragraph one. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these will, uh, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. Now, the felt sight of the light and love of God, the sense of His presence and His favor, may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and temptations of Satan. Yet God is the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where they will enjoy their purchased possession for they are engraved on the palms of His hands. This is Isaiah 49. In that same context where the Lord says, I will never forget you. Even though a mother could forget, if you can imagine a mother forgetting her her children, my love is beyond that. You are engraved on the palms of my hands, and their names have been written in His book of life from all eternity. All right, the next paragraph talks about the causes of perseverance. Number one. The perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. The love of God flows from Himself. It's not drawn out by something lovable in us, right? And so... In spite of the fact that my love, my love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, my peace with Him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. It's in His unchanging nature that, uh, that we are saved. It's His unchanging love that sustains us all the way to the end. Second reason or the second basis of persev- our perseverance is it is based in the efficacy and the mer- of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him. The second reason you're not going to fall is that Jesus Christ is sufficient and His interceding, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Remember He said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail, right? Why did Peter stand? Because there was something strong in him? No, because Christ interceded for him. This is what the confession says. That's the reason that we will persevere. Or thirdly, the oath of God, Hebrews chapter 6. Fourthly, the abiding of His Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Fifthly, because of the seed of God within them, Christ the Word who is in them, that in, how does the Scripture say it? That uh, imperishable seed. And sixthly, because of the nature of the covenant of grace, the great blessing of the new covenant that God will save and keep all those who are His. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. Here is a beautiful expression of this covenant commitment of God. I will make with them an, a, a what kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant and will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will grant them faith, is what he's saying, essentially. I will grant them the faith that I demand of them that they may not turn from me. There's perseverance, right? They will persevere. This is the gift of God's grace in the new covenant. 
And the paragraph ends this way. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. What a plethora of assurances. Right? So, uh, honestly, if you're, if you're, you know, struggling sometime with this doctrine, you know somebody is. Just go through this paragraph and just read again these five, six different bases or reasons for the certainty of the perseverance of the saints. Then the last paragraph, uh, paragraph three, speaks of the consequences of sin that are real in the life of a wayward believer. And yet, even in the midst of that, the hope of preserving grace from God. So paragraph three, they, that is true believers, may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time due to, one, the temptation of Satan in the world, two, due to the strength of corruption remaining in them, and the temptations expose that, and three, due to their neglect of the means of their preservation. And so often, there is, in the moments of failure, a recognition that that believer has neglected the means of his preservation. You know what one of the means of our preservation is? Church. And that's just to, to highlight one. You know how we know that? The scripture tells us explicitly. After the warnings about falling away from God in the book of Hebrews, he says, now let us, um, let us not forsake the assembly of ourselves together and hold on. Uh, you know, let us consider how to um, encourage one another to love and to good works. And he says in the very next breath, but if we go on deliberately living in sin, you know, there is only the judgment of God for us. It was the church was the means of God's keeping grace. And woe to those who neglect the means of their preservation and rest presumptuously on the bare fact that God preserves all of those who are his. So, it goes on to talk, in in talking about those who fall into grievous sin, it says now, in doing so, when believers sin, they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. And as a result, he says, their graces and comforts become impaired, their hearts are hardened, and their consciences wounded. So what happens when a believer sins, even a true believer? Well, he loses the light of God's countenance, so to speak. That is the sense of his pleasure, which is exactly what true Christians hunger for and thirst for. They lose that. They cry out, oh God, don't let me live like this anymore. Um, And by resisting the Holy Spirit, they also are in danger of desensitizing themselves to the internal work of His grace. And the danger is that they can, uh, that they, they should be fearful lest they become completely hardened against God. Here's, here's Hebrews on this, and, and so powerful. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. The assumption is that these people are Christians. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. I thought they were believers. Well, there are those things, such things as temporary believers, right? False faith. 
So be careful, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then I love the way this last uh, verse, verse 14, says it. For we have come to share in Christ. Almost as if that's a definitive thing, right? That's happened if or assuming is the strength of this idea here, that has happened, we are united with Christ, if or assuming we hold our original confidence firm to the end, if we persevere in faith and don't become hardened in our sin. In other words, all of this is showing us that this is a sign of true saving faith. We could take comfort from the assurances, but we also hear the warnings. And here's the way I think warnings, the warnings of these scriptures work in the lives of those who are truly the Lord's. They work as a means of their preservation. So when a true believer hears these warnings, his heart is sensitive to these, and his, his, his life in faith is responsive to them. And he continues on. He turns away from that sin that may be in danger of really hardening him. And then there are two further consequences still in this paragraph. Um, not only do they... Um, their hearts, uh, their comforts are impaired, their hearts are hardened, but they hurt and scandalize others when they fall into sin. They bring pain upon others and shame to the name of Christ, and they bring temporary judgments on themselves. That is the discipline and chastening of the Lord. But in spite of all of the reality that Christians still fall into sin, and sometimes grievous sins like Peter, yet here's the hope that we can embrace. Nevertheless, the end of the paragraph, nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Amen? And that's exactly what happened with Peter. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. He will lose none who are His, but will raise them up on the last day. Those whom He justifies, He will Certainly glorify. Now, those same warnings and assurances are worked out a little bit more in this last chapter that we'll cover this morning, on, this afternoon, on assurance. But uh, anybody have a comment on this paragraph or, <clears throat> I mean on this chapter, or a question on perseverance? Yeah, Dan? There's a, there's a healthy fear, I think, for, that Christians have that they, would, um, that they would fall away, that they would have deceived themselves or deceived others, that they would, uh, in the end, be lost. And that's, there is a healthy thing about that. And it's, I, I've said it many times, those people who have that kind of healthy reverence and fear and take these warnings seriously, those are the people who in the end will have nothing to fear from God because God will preserve them. And He is preserving them by that, by that grace. 
All right, last last chapter then on uh, assurance of grace and salvation. I know we are running low on our time. We'll, we'll go quickly. Paragraph one, temporary believers, already dealt with that, and other re- unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. So what is, they're acknowledging that there is such a thing as a false assurance of faith. I think we've all probably met people like that, right? How many of us haven't met somebody who says, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, and denies some basic fundamental doctrine of the Bible, or is living in a just a clearly ungodly life without any repentance. So it acknowledges that there is a false assurance, and yet it says, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, this is Romans 5.2, and this hope will never make them ashamed, this is Romans 5.5. There is a There is an assurance that God's people can have in this life that they belong to the Lord. Paragraph 2, this certainty is not merely an inconclusive or likely persuasion, a kind of I hope so hope. It's not an inconclusive or likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is an infallible assurance of faith. They've already acknowledged that there are false hopes But now they're talking about a true assurance or what they call an infallible assurance or hope. And then they say there are two grounds for true Christian assurance. And I did a a series of sermons on assurance of salvation a number of years ago. You can go back and listen to those. But here are the two grounds of true Christian assurance. Number one, this assurance is founded on, what's the first one? The blood of and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. In other words, the passive and active obedience of Christ, that is our objective hope, the foundation of all Christian assurance. The first and most foundational place any person should look for assurance that he is in a state of grace is to look outside of himself to the Christ whose righteousness was completely sufficient for him. Any Doctrine of assurance that puts the emphasis, I think, primarily on looking inward. At least I'll say it this way: it, it, it tends to get it tends to get skewed. It tends to get out of balance. The, the, there, this is the objective, external ground of assurance. But now there is, secondly, an internal, subjective cause for. Christian assurance that you're in a state of grace. And it says this, it is also built on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit about which promises are made. What does God promise us? That those who are His will be sanctified. So we're looking for the grace of sanctification in our lives. And it says, it is further based on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And I will say, this is one place where I kind of fault the modern wording here, I think, the modern version that I gave you from the founders. It makes it sound like these are two things. Um, like there's the 
inward evidence of the Holy Spirit, and then there's the further testimony of the Spirit of adoption, and those are like two things. I think those are exactly one thing, and the, the older, the original wording, I think, makes that more apparent. In other words, the second internal subjective cause for us to be sure that we're saved is this. We look inside of our hearts and lives, we look at our actions, we look at our desires, we look at our loves, and we see that they're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, that we're not who we used to be, that we are from the heart obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, not as consistently as we want, and our hearts are grieved about that, but we can see these things, these reactions are not from our from our flesh. This is not us by nature. This is this is supernatural. And so we say, Amen. Amen. I must be in a state of grace. I must be one of the Lord's people. And the, that's why this element of assurance, especially, is one that can grow and increase over your life, right? I'm, I'm a little tired of people teaching this sort of surface-level doctrine of assurance that somebody comes to you and they're struggling with assurance and you say, well, you know, when did you pray the prayer? When did you do this? Did you have something marked in your Bible? Just go back and remember that. This is Satan just lying to you and telling you that you're not saved. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's God telling you you're not saved. Right? There is a kind of assurance that people try to give somebody else. Our assurance comes from the Lord Himself. And that assurance comes by, first of all, looking outside of ourselves to the Lord Christ and then looking and seeing how the Lord Christ is working Himself out in us by the power of His Spirit. And the uh, confession highlights both of those. And then it goes on to say, the end of the paragraph there, um, I'm sorry, let's see, where am I? I lost my place. Infallible, internal, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So as the, yeah, the end of paragraph two, right? Okay. As a fruit of this assurance, our hearts are kept both humble and holy. Whoa, that's big, because one of the criticisms of this kind of doctrine of assurance um, from the Roman Catholic um, Church, even in the the day of the Reformation, was that, um, hey, if this assurance is going to make people presumptuous, it's going to make them say, well, if... If I cannot lose my state of grace, then, uh, you know, what does it matter how I live? I've already got salvation in the bag, so to speak. And the reformer said, no, assurance does not make, true assurance does not result in presumption. It results in purity. And 1 John chapter 3 says this in verse 2. He says, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. There's the assurance. And then it says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just like he's pure. So true biblical assurance is a, an assurance that actually purifies a person. And then finally, paragraph three, in closing. This paragraph, um, excuse me, this infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it always fully, it is always fully experienced alongside faith. But true believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. In other words, there's the possibility that somebody can be truly saved and really still struggle 
with that sense of assurance that he is the Lord's to some degree. And it says, yet, with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain in they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. In other words, this assurance is not just given to a few elite saints who have a vision from God that they're certainly bound for heaven. You can find this out by observing the Word of God, the Spirit of God and His work in you. Therefore, it is the duty of all, it says, to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. This is Second Peter. And by the way, that whole paragraph in Peter, Second Peter, I think it's 2, that whole paragraph is, is a beautiful passage for um, teaching you about strengthening your assurance. And then it ends this way, with the benefits or the blessings of assurance. I'm sorry, I, there is one more paragraph in there. <laughs> I'll turn the next page. In this way, our hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These effects are the natural fruits of this assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. And then the last paragraph, true believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or even temporarily lost. It's not saying their salvation is lost, but rather the assurance of their salvation may be lost for a time. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall upon, fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. It may happen through some unexpected or forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and have no light, a kind of test from God. Uh, a stretching of their faith, like when the lover in the Song of Solomon awakens to find that her beloved gone, and it and it increases her love for and desire for that one. And yet it says they are never completely lacking in the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ, and the brethren, sincerity of heart, or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. And in the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. When that sense of assurance is lost, when that sense of closeness with God, communion with God, the light of His countenance is obscured, what do true Christians do? They get on their knees and say, Oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And they wait. And sometimes they have to just hold on to the promises of God. They have to just look outside of themselves and just hold on to Jesus for dear life until the Lord restores again to them the sense from the work of the Spirit by the Word and, and in their lives, that they are the Lord's. And I've known some dear people who I believe to be truly the Lord's people who have waited for a strong grace of assurance 
and have just struggled for it for for various reasons. I don't I don't always know all the reasons, but uh, sometimes looking on their lives from the outside, you can see the grace of God working in them. And you know, I will say this that generally speaking, the people who are the most concerned about their relationship with God, whether it's genuine or not. Generally speaking, those are the people I'm least concerned about. Because there is that. There is that desire, that concern. Who I'm most concerned about is the guy who says, yeah, of course I'm saved. He doesn't, he never thinks about any deeply about his relationship with the Lord. And the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. He will so often, with the other graces of salvation, also bring that point to a person to a point of great assurance, a growing sense that, yes, the Lord is in me. I am His. Here's the way Lamentations says it. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And so he waits. He believes holds on to the Lord and he pursues the means of grace. And the Lord is gracious to those who call on him like that. He really is. It is a grace of God, a grace to save, a grace to sanctify, a grace to keep and preserve all, all wrapped up in and because of the one from whom all these blessings flow, right? Let's never forget that. Never let lose sight of that. Sanctification is a great grace, but it's great in that it flows from Christ. Keeping, preserving is a grace from God, but it's you, no graces are detached from Christ. What you want is not ultimately assurance. What you want ultimately is Christ. And that's what every believer keeps driving towards. Amen?